Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 131, The Life and Murder of Grigory Rasputin, Part 1. Last time, we covered the mysterious death of Tsar Alexander I and his conversion, possibly, to one Fyodor Kuzmich. In this podcast series, we'll follow the life and murder of one of history's most controversial figures, Grigory Efimovich Rasputin. Anyone with any interest in Russian or Soviet history is familiar with the name Rasputin. The story of how this simple man from Western Siberia became a confidant of Tsar Nicholas II and his wife Alexandra is the stuff of legend. Furthermore, his murder by members of the Russian aristocracy is equally, if not more, fascinating still. The fascination is elevated even further with the publication of the book, quote, The Murder of Grigory Rasputin, a conspiracy that brought down the Russian Empire by Margarita Nalipa. I will cover her contentions in this podcast. And, of course, the next one. History is filled with fascinating people, most of whom were leaders of some sort. Generals, kings, queens, czars are written about, but few were ever considered peasants. There are exceptions like Spartacus, the leader of the Russian rebellions like Stenka Razin, but they are few and far between. Rasputin is an historical anomaly, as he never held any real power whatsoever, despite rumors otherwise. He was just a true oddity in history. As Colin Wilson puts it in his book, Rasputin and the Fall of the Romanovs, quote, no figure in modern history has provoked such a mass of sensational and unreliable literature as Grigory Rasputin. More than a hundred books have been written about him, and not a single one can be accepted as a sober presentation of his personality. There is an enormous amount of material on him, and most of it is full of invention or willful inaccuracy. Rasputin's life, then, is not a history it is a clash of history with subjectivity. Now, my job to, in today's podcast is to provide you, the listener, with as much objectivity as I can with so much contradictory information about Rasputin being out there. Now, the first bit of controversy is when was he born? Well, the facts that I've been able to find is that he was certainly born on January 9th, 1869, in the West Siberian plains town of Porovskoy to Efim Yakolevich Rasputin and Anya Vasilyevna Parshukova. Although being a peasant family, they were certainly not considered poor as they owned a dozen cows and 18 horses. Out of the nine children born to his parents, Grigory and his sister Fedosia were the only two who made it to adulthood. Now, to give you some perspective as where Pokrovskoy is, it's over 2,300 kilometers or 1,400 miles away from Moscow and about the same distance to St. Petersburg. This vast distance makes Rasputin's rise to prominence even more extraordinary. Some have said that Grigory grew up in very squalid conditions, but that simply was not true. His childhood wooden home was a two-story, eight-room house which lasted until 1980, when it was destroyed by the Soviet government. 
Early on, Grigori was a biblical scholar despite being functionally illiterate. As brought out by Margarita Nalipa in her book, The Murder of Grigori Rasputin, my primary source for this podcast, but not the only one. The surname Rasputin was a popular one in Siberia, likely derived from the word, and I'm going to botch these words up, I'll do the best I can, Rasputi, or crossroads. One other derivation that was proposed was the Russian word Rasputzvo, which means debauchery. But that simply is ludicrous and was proposed by the enemies of Grigori. Another possibility is that it is derived from the word Raputivat, which means to detangle. I'll go with crossroads, which makes much more sense. Grigori, crossroads, slash Rasputin, fits the man perfectly. The debauchery term, though, stuck with him, especially as his aristocratic enemies wanted to come up with reasons to get rid of him. As a child, he was noted for having physical tics. From Joseph Furman's book, The Life and Death of Rasputin, quote, His limbs jerked, he shuffled his feet, and always kept his hands occupied. Despite physical tics, he commanded attention. Very little else is known about his childhood, and what we do know comes from his daughter, Maria. Shortly after he turned 18, Rasputin married Paraskovia Fyodorovna Dubrovina, who was about two or three years older than him, depending on who you talk to. Together, they had seven children, of whom only three made it to adulthood, which was, of course, not uncommon in those days. When he turned 23, something happened in his life, and we're not absolutely sure what it is. And this causes a complete transformation. He became what is known as a stranik or straniki, known as a religious wanderer. This is opposed, as opposed to him incorrectly being labeled a staretz, or quote, an unusually religious man, like Fyodor Kuzmich. There's also another rumor of him being brought up on charges of being a horse thief. But I view that with real suspicion, as he went back to his hometown many times over the years without it ever being brought up again. In his wanderings, he went to numerous monasteries throughout Russia, as well as Greece in 1900 and Jerusalem in 1911. His trips were all done on foot, covering thousands upon thousands of miles. His time at the monastery on Mount Athos in Greece left him disillusioned, but it made him more convinced of the belief that Russian Orthodoxy was the one true religion and that the Greek Church had lost its way. Because of these travels, whenever he returned to his hometown of Pokrovskoy, he was greeted with great interest as he would tell the people the stories of his travels. It also got him into trouble with the local bishop, as town folk began to go to Rasputin for spiritual advice instead of the local priest. Here he made his first enemy, but certainly not his last. Grigori was ordered to cease his meetings with the locals, which supposedly made him disillusioned once again with his backward hometown, so he decided to head off to the ancient city of Kiev, a distance of about 1,800 miles or 2,900 kilometers. While on his way, he stopped by Kazan, where he met with the local bishop who gave him a reference for him to use to get to St. Petersburg. He made it to the capital in the fall of 1904. When he got there, 
he headed to the Alexander Nevsky Lavra, the monastery, where he asked for a place to stay and some food. It was here that he met with Archimandrit Fiofan, who was a spiritual advisor to the Tsar. While understanding that Rasputin was not a learned man, he felt that he was a deeply spiritual one. The monk Iliodor describes the Stranek at the first meeting as quoted in Margarita Nalipa's book, quote, Grigori was wearing a plain, cheap, gray-colored jacket. His pockets were blown out like a pauper's. The pants were like the jacket, tucked under rough men's boots. Hair was roughly combed. His beard barely resembled a beard, glued to his face. His hands were rough and soiled. Under the long nails, there was dirt. His body gave off an unpleasant smell. From here, he went to the St. Andrew Monastery to be blessed by the famous Father John of Kronstadt. Father John was later to be made a saint by the Russian Orthodox Church in 1964, and I was at the ceremony in New York when they did that. And that was because of his piety and his life. He was the most highly respected father in all of Russia at the time. And Father John blessed Rasputin in front of his congregation, which was considered highly unusual. The news of this event hit the streets of St. Petersburg's high society. Archimandrit Fiofan, Bishop Hermogen, and the monk Iliodor encouraged Rasputin to go to the imperial court because of what they saw was an increased interest in occultism, mysticism, and seances being held there, and the need to turn those people back to the true church. An interesting aside about Bishop Hermogen, because the name just sounded familiar to me, is that when he was the dean of the Tiflis Theologic Seminary in Tbilisi, Georgia, he was responsible for the expulsion of its most famous student, one Joseph Jugashvili, also known as Stalin. The first couple Rasputin met was the Montenegrin sisters, Grand Duchess Anastasia and Militsai, who were married to the Grand Dukes Nikolai and Peter Nikolaevich. Both of the sisters were interested in Persian mysticism as well as the occult, but were absolutely mesmerized by this odd man from Pokrovskoy. Because of the association with these women and Rasputin, we see the beginnings of the myths surrounding the man. On November 1, 1905, Tsar Nicholas II and his wife Alexandra were introduced to the Sranik at the home of Anastasia in Militsaya during tea. This is how Nicholas felt about the meeting from his diary. Quote, Cold, windy day. At 4 p.m. went to Sergievska, drank tea with Militsaya and Stonok, introduced to a man of God, Grigory from the Tobolsk province. Obviously, nothing extraordinary occurred at their first meeting. It should be noted that 1905 was an extremely tough year for the Tsar and Russia in general. We have the end of the disastrous Russo-Japanese War, Bloody Sunday, the revolution of 1905, and the subsequent forced creation of a constitutional monarchy and the Duma, something that gnawed at the very soul of Nicholas. The next meeting between the Tsar and Rasputin did not occur for eight months but the meeting was met with enthusiasm by Nicholas. In his diary, he writes, quote, 
During the evening, we were at Sergevka and saw Grigori. What makes this remarkable was the use of an exclamation mark at the end of the sentence. It is at this point that Melitsaya warns Rasputin to be very careful in the way he approached and met with the Tsar and Tsarina. She was very aware of the machinations of the Russian imperial court and how deep jealousy ran through within high society. I remember as a child how my mother and grandmother would chatter about other people in society, invoke the name of Rasputin when putting someone down because of their closeness to the Metropolitan in New York. And I remember there was one man who was kind of the aide to the Metropolitan. His name was Nikita. And they would talk about him and say, oh, that's the Rasputin of New York. You know, I can only imagine how it was in St. Petersburg in the early part of the 20th century, knowing that my grandmother was there and the kind of person she was and all other parts of the society of, of Russians that I got to know, to know when I was in New York. Now, did Rasputin heed the advice of his friend Militsaya? Of course not. He went ahead and sent a telegram to the royal couple asking for a private audience to present him with an icon of the miracle worker, St. Simeon Verkhotsurskaya. It was ostensibly for their son Alexei to help with his hemophilia. Another interesting fact here is that this same icon was found in the Epatiev house where the royal family was murdered. It must have been a very important treasure to them. Rasputin went to the young Tsarevich, Alexei, to help soothe the boy who was recovering from a hemophiliac episode and was having trouble sleeping. The fact that the heir to the Russian throne had hemophilia was a state secret known only to a select few. The ability of Rasputin to somehow affect the disease and ease the boy's pain was one of the main reasons that Stranek was able to ingratiate himself with the royal family, especially Tsarina Alexandra. In October of 1906, Rasputin was asked by the Tsar to visit the daughter of Prime Minister Pyotr Stolypin who had been injured in a bomb blast. Now, Stolypin was an enemy of Rasputin in the future, but at the time, he went to visit her because there was a frame of about 28 people killed in this assassination attempt, including one of the uh, children of Stolypin, and one was injured. Now, Nicholas felt that Grigori could help the young girl heal faster. In his mind now, Rasputin must have felt that he had a personal in with the royal family. From here on, he was able to visit the Tsar and Tsarina at their home in Tsarskoy Selo. The Stranik was careful, though, at first, not to take advantage of the imperial hospitality. But on March 29, 1909, he broke all court rules by going to the palace through a side entrance and went straight to the Empress's study. The news of this breach of protocol spread like wildfire, as no one else had this kind of privilege. Many view this as the tipping point in Russian high society's view of Rasputin. This simple and uncouth man had access to the Tsar and his family, and they didn't. Well, that would not go over well. Many in St. Petersburg felt that this was a slap in their face and would begin to turn the tide against Nicholas and Alexandra. Two people in particular would feel the most put off by Rasputin's closeness to the royal family, and that was the Montenegro sisters, Militsaya and Anastasia. Instead of them being insiders, they were replaced by Grigori and one of his followers, Anna 
by Rubova, who became Zarina Alexandra's best friend. They also felt betrayed as they were the ones to introduce Rasputin to the Imperial family, and now they were pushed aside. They would not take this well. Anna Vyrobova will be a topic of one of my future podcasts because of her book, Memoirs of the Russian Court. By 1907, Rasputin began to get a reputation of being able to soothe young Alexei whenever he had an injury that would cause great pain. The reality is, nothing that Grigori did was really remarkable as the boy, as we now know medically, would have improved on his own with no medical, or for that matter, spiritual help needed. But the Tsar and his wife thought differently, since none of the doctors could explain the improvements in their son. They believed it must have been divine intervention brought on by the holy man Rasputin. Now, some others accused him of using hypnosis to calm the boy, but that doesn't hold water as he was able to achieve the effect even when he was thousands of kilometers away in his hometown. Over time, his position within the imperial court became more important over the years as he was to serve as a spiritual confidant to the royal couple. This angered many in the Orthodox Church as they saw this unordained Sranik as having way too much influence in the religious well-being of the family. And the rumors began to fly about Rasputin. First, the church began to look into allegations that he was a member of the Klist sect, which believed in using sexual orgies as a means of purging sin from the soul. From everything that I've looked at, this was probably a total fabrication. His daughter Maria claimed he did look into it, but did not practice it. Both Mstislav Rostopovich and Edvard Radzinski believe there is no evidence as well. By 1910, the attacks against Rasputin began to pick up steam, as well as going public. Throughout the 300 years of Romanov rule, it was generally thought that if things were not going well, and at the time, remember, they weren't, it wasn't the fault of the Tsar, their Batushka. No, it had to be the boyars or the evil administrators or some other scapegoat that was to blame. Here, there was this odd man who had befriended this strange German-born Tsarina who became the target. Now remember, Tsarina Alexandra was not a very well-liked person throughout the aristocratic society and by the people because she was very reserved, uh, they viewed this as a coldness, a German coldness, but it was actually, she was a very shy woman, and this was kind of natural for her, but it didn't go well with people. Now, despite the fact that Nicholas II himself was 97% German, he was still the Tsar and still had the backing of the majority of the people. The aristocracy's backing, well, that's a whole other thing. They were beginning to believe that Nicholas was too weak of a man, and that he could cause things to deteriorate in Russia and lead to chaos and possible revolution. And they were worried about their own position in society with a revolution, that the peasants would come down on them pretty hard, as we remember with the, the four major rebellions that uh, we went over in an earlier podcast. By now, even the Duma began to also publicly denounce Rasputin's influence. The newspapers began to vilify him despite censorship, the articles became more and more frequent, much to the dismay of the imperial family. 
The church began to insinuate that Alexandra and Rasputin were having a sexual affair by providing the Tsar with letters supposedly between the two. Nicholas then ordered Rasputin to return to Siberia, not because he really believed the rumors, but because he wanted to protect his friend. Members of Nicholas's inner circle, like Prime Minister Stolepin, urged the Tsar repeatedly to get rid of the Stranik because of the bad publicity, but he could never complete the task. On Sunday, July 12, 1914, after lunch while in Pokrovskoy, a woman by the name of Kionya Guseva attacked Rasputin with a dagger, stabbing him twice in the stomach. The Tsar had to send one of his own physicians to aid in his recovery. According to Rasputin's daughter Maria, he would never be the same. While Rasputin had many enemies, there were four major ones, Stolepin and his old friends Theophan, Hermogen, and Iliador. He had really alienated these people because they were no longer as close to the Tsar as he was. They didn't like this. This is... This theme goes throughout all this machinations about who Rasputin really was. There's a lot of jealousy going on. But after the attempted assassination incident, most of Rasputin's main and influential enemies were gone. Stolepin had died. Theophan and Bishop Hermogen were either banished or exiled. And the monk Iliador was in hiding because of their vocal hatred of Rasputin. Everyone in Europe now knew that things were building towards war. Rasputin spoke up against Russia's involvement, and we know that you know, there was a lot of talk about which side Russia would go to. And he was quoted as saying, quote, If Russia goes to war, it will be the end of the monarchy, of the Romanovs, and Russian institutions. How very prophetic he was. Within the first year of World War I, at that time known as the Great War, over 1.5 million men had died in the conflict, and the war was going very poorly. Men were deserting their posts, and the population was beginning to call for an end to the autocracy. Strangely, Alexander called on Rasputin to return to St. Petersburg. This was absolutely the worst thing she could have done. The publicity was horrific. Well, here's where I'm going to pause the podcast, as next week I'm going to cover the conspiracy and murder of Rasputin. I'll go over the events leading to his assassination and bring in the people involved in it. Some will be the usual ones known to almost everyone, like Felix Yusupov, Purishkevich, and Dr. Lazovert. Others will be a real surprise, and I will reveal who I think pulled the trigger on the kill shot. And for most of you, that will be the biggest surprise of all. And I'm also going to tell you that some of the myths about how he survived for so long aren't really that true. He wasn't that, you know, uh, much of a uh, superman, as you've heard. So, well, I hope you enjoyed that. Please come visit the website at www.RussianRulersHistory. And if you can, please make a donation to keep the podcast going. Don't forget to drop by our Facebook group at Russian Rulers History and join the lively conversations. And i got to say, I love the people in that Facebook group. We've got some great things, some good humor, 
from Russian history and some pictures from the past and things like that. It's just a fantastic group. And there you can ask a question, leave a comment, or make a suggestion. So now, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.